Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. for reading that. Welcome this morning. Uh, If I did not meet you, my name is Stephen. I'm the lead pastor here at City on a Hill. And I'm so glad that you were with us today. And as we read those uh, words, as Angie read them in in Indonesian, we think about the hope of the resurrection. The resurrection is a hope for every people on earth, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And when we imagine the singing of the glory of God in heaven one day, remembering the resurrected Christ, I believe we are going to hear a tapestry of languages singing to the glory of God. And so, that's a little precursor, a little prefigure of that uh, this morning. And so welcome. We are so glad that you are here as we celebrate the resurrected Jesus. And so if you're a guest with us today, we are doubly excited that you're here. And so whether you found us through uh, a personal invite, whether a family member or a friend invited you, you got a door hanger, you got a mailer, we're just glad that you're here. We would love to get to know you and just thank you for being here this morning. We'd love to send you a, uh, a $5 gift card to Ula Cafe, as well as make a donation in your name for $5 to a list of one of from a list of charities that we'll send you. So you'll find a blue card in your seat. You can fill that card out and drop it in the box in the back uh, as a way. And we'll just send that to you as a thank you. Uh, Our values as a church are the gospel community and mission. Gospel literally means good news. And we have the best news in the world that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And anyone who trusts in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus can be saved. And so if you've not entered into that this morning, we'd love to talk with you about how to do so. Secondly, community. God created us for relationships across culture, across boundaries, together, growing as we follow Jesus together. We do that through community groups. So if you're interested in getting involved, getting a little more involved here at City on a Hill, just follow, fill out that next step card, drop it in the box in the back. And then lastly, mission. We believe that good news should be told. We tell others about what Christ has done for us. We join God on his mission as well as living lives shaped by the mission of God, that we love and care for others in the way that Jesus has cared for us. A couple of announcements before we get into the text today. Uh, Coming up this Saturday, the 23rd, we're having a Discover class. Uh, This is for anyone who's interested in more information about City in a Hill, wants to learn more about us. Um, This is the first step in membership, but you don't have to become a member if you come to this class. Uh, We will feed you breakfast. And so if that's not a good enough hook, I don't know what is. So we'll feed you, come find out more about City in a Hill. Uh, you can do so by going through our event page, C-O-A-H forestills.org slash events. Just let us know you're coming. And then starting next Sunday, we are starting a new series called Thriving in the City. We live in a hard city. Boston is a hard place to live. And we believe the Bible gives us some keys about how to thrive in a city like Boston. So be sure to come back next week. Now, I don't know about you, but when I have a question, I do one thing. When you have any question, what do you first do? Where do you go? You may want to yell it out. Google. We go to Google for any question that we have. And so any question I have, I usually just turn to Google, type it in, and I usually find the answer I'm looking for. And so I got curious this week, what were the top five searches in 2021? Okay, top five searches. Number five was, how do I delete my Instagram account? There are probably some good reasons for that. 3.5 million per month, okay? Second was just simply, what if? I think that might have meant the Marvel show or just kind of what if, like what if maybe people are just, they're worried about all the possible things that could happen. What if? That was also 3.5 million. How many ounces are in a cup? 
also 3.5 million per month. We just need to go to the metric system. It'd be so much easier. Third, four, number two is what is my IP address? Don't know why you'd find that on the internet. My grandparents used to be convinced. They were actually upset. They couldn't find their medical records on Google. They didn't understand computers. And number one is what should I watch? Coming in at 7.5 million searches per month. That shows we are the Netflix generation. But the most important questions in life, you can't Google. You may be able to Google and do research and give yourself information, but Google can't tell you where to go to school. Google can't tell you whether you should take that job. It can't tell you where you should live or whether you should get married or whether you should have children. Or It can't answer the big questions in life, and it can't answer the biggest question in life. The question that splits history, the question that if it is true, if the answer to this question is yes, it changes absolutely everything. And it's a question that is so big and has so much stake behind it that if it is true, it actually answers every question. And this is the question that Easter answers. Did Jesus really physically raise from the dead? Did Jesus really physically raise for the dead? And it matters more than any other question because it has a bigger claim and a bigger stake than any question that you or I could ask. Now, most people, most of us were okay with Jesus the person. We like Jesus's care for the poor. We like what Jesus says about loving our neighbor. We like the morals of Jesus. Some of us are maybe even okay with the idea of Jesus dying on a cross as an example of love for us. But the stumbling block for many of us, the the road that's just, the bridge that's just too far for us to cross is Jesus physically raising from the dead because it's impossible. We've all been to funerals. People don't raise from the dead, but what if they did? What if it is possible? And when we think about the resurrection, it might seem improbable. It might seem impossible. And I would agree with you. It would take an absolute miracle for Jesus to raise from the dead. And that is exactly what Christianity is claiming. That's that's the claim, that only a limitless God who is all-powerful could do the unimaginable and the impossible to raise Jesus from the dead. And if this is true, it changes everything for us. And what this means for you and I is that when we mourn and we see death, death is not the end for you and I. That we can have real hope. And it means that we can trust Jesus with everything. If Jesus came through on the biggest claim that he made, that he would die, and on the third day raise again, it means that you can bring all your doubts and all your struggles and all those weird things in the Bible that you don't like, you can bring them to Jesus and you can submit to him because the biggest problem has been taken care of. That Jesus rose from the dead. And Christianity stands or falls on this premise that Jesus rose from the dead. C.S. Lewis wrote that to preach Christianity meant primarily to preach the resurrection. The resurrection is the central theme in every Christian sermon reported in the Acts. Acts is a book right after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament that talks about what the early church was like. And every single message came back to the resurrection. Because as Paul told the Corinthian church, if Jesus did not raise from the dead, we're wasting our time. The resurrection and its consequences were the gospel or good news, which the Christians brought. And we gather today on Easter because Jesus rose from the dead. 
It is the good news, and we have to wrestle with it. And the question that you have to answer, you have, you have to consider, is Jesus alive? And I invite you to do that this morning. We're gonna look together at why we believe that Jesus physically rose from the dead. So firstly, let's look at the evidence. In the first bit of evidence, we see that Jesus rose from the dead is an empty tomb. If you look at verse one of our passage this morning, you see that on the first day of the week at early dawn, they, the women, went to the tomb taking spices that they had prepared. Now, to give you a little bit of context, if you weren't here with us on Good Friday or you're not familiar with the Christian story, Christians, we believe that Jesus on Good Friday, a couple days before this, was crucified on a Roman cross. We believe he died and went into the grave. And this was important because this happened during the Jewish festival of Passover. This was to be the Sabbath of Sabbaths, a true rest from sin. And they would go every year to Passover and they would make sacrifices every year. And so Jesus dying upon the cross is the final sacrifice that you and I would need. And so as Jesus has his arms stretched out, nailed to the cross, he says the words, it is finished. And do you know what those words mean? They mean it is finished. There's no more work. There's no more sacrifice. There's no more blood because Jesus has made a payment for sin forever. Now, the question is, is what happened after this? We see the women, if you look at the end of chapter 23, they began to prepare the body of Jesus. Jesus died around 3 p.m. on Friday, and the Jewish Sabbath would have started around 6 o'clock on Friday. And they're about to enter into the Sabbath. And on that Sabbath, that Saturday, in the Christian tradition, we call that Holy Saturday. It's meant to be a day of waiting and and silence and, and resting and anticipation. And on this first Holy Saturday, these women go and leave the dead body of Jesus in the tomb. And they wait. And they long. And they mourn. On Friday, they begin preparing the body of Jesus. They rest on Saturday. They come back Sunday at early dawn. They go to the tomb with no expectations of a risen Jesus. Jesus is dead. All hope is gone. It seems completely surreal that the one that they had given their devotion and their time and their energy to for three years is no longer here. They go with no expectation or hope. And for many of you this morning, you may have woken up feeling the exact same thing feeling dead, feeling like there is no hope, nothing that you could expect, no joy to come at the end of the day. And then we see in verses two and three that as they approach the tomb, they find that the stone has been rolled away. Now, the way that Jews would bury their dead is they would put them inside of a cave and then take a large stone disc and roll it down a channel, kind of downhill in front of the tomb. This would have taken probably well over a dozen people to move this stone. And the women, they come to the tomb, they see that it's gone and they went in and they looked for the body of Jesus. They look for the body and it is gone. And verse four says that they are perplexed. They're trying to wrap their head around this question. Where's Jesus? Where's the body of Jesus? Something is wrong and it should be perplexing to them and it should be perplexing to us because you have to answer the question. Why is the tomb empty? This is the first piece of evidence that shows us that there's something much bigger than natural occurrences happening because no matter what you believe, whether you consider yourself a follower of Jesus or not, you have to account for the risen, for the, for the empty tomb. 
And there are lots of alternative theories that people tried to come up with for an empty tomb. And this is not just something that, uh, that, Jew, that Christian writers wrote about, but Jewish writers wrote about the fact that there was no body. Nobody was ever found. One of the most popular, is probably the most popular, was that someone came and stole the body. Anybody ever saw Weekend at Bernie's? Uh, that's kind of what they imagined. Someone came and stole the body, thinking most likely the, the disciples or the apostles that they came and they took the body of Jesus and wanted to pretend like Jesus had risen from the dead. But there are several problems with that theory. Several problems with that theory. And the biggest problem is the fact that how are these untrained fishermen gonna get by the equivalent of the Navy SEALs? They had the very best sitting around this tomb, so we imagine they all fell asleep or went on break or were playing whirl on their phone. Like they all got distracted and this group of people were able to come and move a large stone out of the way without anyone noticing. But the other thing is they had no motive. They gained nothing because they weren't expecting a risen Jesus. They weren't expecting a king who would die and raise again. They were imagining a king who would live forever. They were imagining, imagining a political Messiah who would come and overthrow the government. In fact, Matthew anticipated this objection and in fact wrote about it at the end of his gospel, talking about how the Romans spread the rumor that someone came and stole the body, which would have made them look like idiots. The second theory is the swoon theory, that Jesus was just really injured. Jesus was just kind of hurt. Look, I worked out three times this week. I'm 39. I can barely walk. I can't imagine what it would be like to be crucified through my hands and my feet, beaten for 36 hours before that, a spear jammed through my side. If this were so, people were not going to look at Jesus and be amazed. They were going to say, buddy, you need to get to a hospital. But everyone who saw Jesus gloried in the fact that they saw something new about his resurrected body. I think my favorite is probably the twin brother theory, the lookalike. I don't know if you've ever seen the Spider-Man meme where they're pointing at each other. Like that someone believed that, that he had a twin and it was a lookalike that they posed as, as Jesus. But in fact, Jesus' own mother saw him crucified and saw him risen again. But the one we're dealing with here that maybe you could object to would be that they were just hallucinating. They just hallucinated. They, they thought that they saw it. And we've all known people who were so wrecked with grief after someone dies that they think that they can hear their loved ones still speaking to them. Maybe these women were so grief-stricken, they just wanted to believe that they saw Jesus. But the problem is that they are not the only ones. Over 500 people at different times and in different places saw Jesus. They, they touched Jesus. They ate with Jesus. They spoke with Jesus. See, something miraculous has happened that can only be explained by the power of God. And we see this in verse four. It says, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. We look at the other gospels. They are described as angels. These angels are coming to as a scene of God's presence and God's comfort. And they're overwhelmed because they see something holy occurring and they crumple to the ground like the strength has left their legs and we get the answer as to why the tomb is empty. It says, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. The tomb is empty because God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, is this miraculous? Absolutely. 
Does it seem impossible? Sure, but it doesn't mean it didn't happen. And it's precisely why you and I can have hope that God can do the impossible in our lives. Marshall Seagal said that the promises simply seem too good to be true until we see God raise Jesus from the dead. Suddenly what seemed so impossible to man was wonderfully possible and guaranteed with God. The curse of sin is death. It is a curse that you and I cannot overcome. We can't make ourselves alive. We can't change ourselves enough or do enough or outperform enough. We need someone who came and overcame death, and that is Jesus. And in the resurrection of Jesus, we're shown the immeasurable power of God to raise Jesus from the dead as a promise that we will too experience that resurrection for those who place their trust in him. Charlie Date says that the truth of the resurrection will transform even your death one day. So the first bit of evidence is the empty tomb. The second are the words of Jesus. Now I want you to notice the angel's next words. He says the word, remember. Say that with me, remember. Remember, remember what? Remember what Jesus had told them. Now, Jesus fulfills all sorts of Old Testament prophecies about his resurrection. In Hosea, it talks about the hope of being raised up with him on the third day. In Psalm 16, he talks about his body not being abandoned to Sheol. Jonah and the whale is a picture of Jonah going into the belly of the well and then on the third day being brought back to life. This picture of that in Jesus, but also Jesus's very own words. Jesus called a shot. In verse seven, we see that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day, crucified and on the third day rise. Multiple times, Jesus told his disciples, I'm gonna die, but I'm gonna raise again. I'm gonna die, but I'm gonna raise again. And I don't think they quite understood the gravity and the weight of his words. You ever been told something by someone and it just doesn't click at the time, but then years later, maybe even after they've passed away, those words hit you a little bit differently? Anybody experienced that? My dad, I love my dad. We didn't have a great relationship until we were older, but my dad had a, a problem of repeating himself. I've inherited that uh, as well. So if you hear me tell you the same story or the same thing again, just, just smile and nod. Uh, I get it from my dad. I get it honest. And so my dad, every time I would go to his house, it took like 20 minutes to get to the back of his neighborhood. I would go to his house and as I was leaving his house, he'd say, son, don't roll through the stop sign. Make sure you stop at the stop sign every single time. And then years later, he'd come to our house and he'd be like, son, I really think you need a screen door. I don't know why, he was just really concerned about a screen door. Son, you need a screen door. And it got to the point where I would start to actually just finish the sentence for him. I'm like, son, I'm like, dad, do you think I need a screen door? He's like, yeah, I really do. And I'm like, You've told me this about a thousand times. Now, later on, I didn't get the gravity of it at the moment. This was just my dad's weird way of telling me he loved me, that he cared about me, that he was thinking about me in these weird ways. Jesus said these words that didn't really hit them at the time, but actually was preparing them for this very moment. He wanted to pack that truth away until the day that they needed, needed it. And it didn't fully resonate with them at the time, but now it just clicks. And this is why we read the Bible, because we're storing away good news for when we're gonna need it. And maybe you've heard this story over and over and over again, and it just hasn't clicked. 
Maybe you grew up sitting in a pew just like this. Maybe you came on Easter Sunday and you heard about a Jesus who died and a Jesus who rose again and it just never became real or present to you. And I pray this morning that it would. And we see this with the women. It says in verse eight, and they remembered. The words that they had heard, the good news that they had heard, they now see is coming to fruition. And we see them as the next bit of evidence, the first eyewitnesses. The most compelling part of this for me is the eyewitnesses because it's hard to deny what someone says that they saw. And the first group of people to see are this group of women that Jesus loves. Verse 10, we see Mary Magdalene, who was once a woman who had seven demons who Jesus healed. We see Joanna, we see Mary, the mother of James, people in society who had very little power, who were very often disregarded that Jesus honors but they're not the only ones. As I mentioned earlier, over 500 people witnessed Jesus, but it's not the number of people for me. It's the impact that seeing the resurrected Christ had upon them. They, they really believed this and they lived the rest of their days, the rest of their lives, believing that Jesus really rose from the dead and it changed everything so much so that most of them died really gruesome martyrs' deaths going to their grave, proclaiming the risen Christ. And this is unique because Jesus wasn't the first person to come along during this time saying he was a Messiah. In fact, there are history records between, between 10 and 12 other people who came along claiming to be a type of Messiah. And every single one of them died and none of their followers claimed that their Messiah rose from the dead. In fact, if you look at Acts, which Luke also wrote, we see that he proves this point as they're standing before the council. So if you look at Acts chapter five, verse 33 through 38, it should be on the screen. It says, when they heard this, they heard of the disciples testifying about the risen Jesus. They were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And when he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400 joined him. He was killed and also followed, uh, also all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. him. He too perished and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone for if this plan, or if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. It will fail. See, when Messiah died, you had two options. You either elect a new Messiah, which nobody's gonna be in for that if they just saw the last guy die, or you run and hide. Now notice what the disciples did. Look at verse 39. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching their, that, that Christ is Jesus. 
They kept on teaching. They kept on preaching. They kept on testifying. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. Robert Stein says that only the clear and unmistakable appearance of the risen Christ could have overcome such doubt and replaced it with unshakable faith. What they saw radically changed them and they could not live the same. And when you come to trust in the resurrected Jesus, your life changes forever. Now, the reality is, is no matter how convincing the evidence is, no matter how well I explained it this morning, no matter how much research you do, you have to see it for yourself. You have to make it your own. Secondly, you, you have to see Jesus for yourself. And the women, they see Jesus and they run and they tell the disciples. And as the disciples listen to this, we see in verse 11, they just don't believe them. They're skeptical. They said that they had be, seemed to be, to, to them it was idle, an idle tale or was nonsense talk and they did not believe them. They were so gripped with their grief, they couldn't believe that Jesus really rose from the dead. There's no way, I just saw him die, it can't be true. And maybe that's you. Maybe where you're at right now, you hear about others coming to faith in Jesus. Maybe you're even seeing people be baptized this morning and you see the change in other people's lives and it just seems too unbelievable for you. You think you're just, you're too hurt or you're, you're too broken. You're, you're, you're too far away. You're too sinful to receive Jesus, to have a relationship with God. But that's the entire point of the gospel, that Jesus would come and give his life for you, that he would raise again for you because he wants you to see him risen. He wants you to experience this personally. And I wanna be clear, when I talk about seeing a vision of the resurrected Jesus, I mean, I want you to believe it for yourself. No one can believe for you. Your parents can't believe for you. Your spouse can't believe for you. Your friends can't believe for you. You have to consider it for yourself. Do you believe and trust that Jesus rose from the dead? Whether you're searching or whether you're reluctant, reluctant, Jesus wants you to see him. We see Peter, who is like many of us, stubborn, has to be told a million times, he has to go see it. Peter, and actually they kind of make fun of him a little bit in, in John's account that he was slower than John. He ran his, his little legs all the way to the tomb and he gets there and he looks in and he's seeking and, he's, and he bends down. He marvels at what happened and he didn't quite trust Jesus yet. We see a little bit later where Peter's sitting on a boat and he looks out and he sees the resurrected Christ and he throws off everything that hinders him and he swims to the shore and he finds a Jesus standing with his arms wide open to embrace him. A Jesus standing with his arms wide open to forgive all of his failures. If that's you this morning, run to Jesus, throw off anything that hinders you. Some of you are really wrestling with the possibility of this, much like in verses 13 and 14, the two men on the road to Emmaus they're discussing with each other what they've seen. And this is the really cool thing about the Bible is no matter how long you've read the Bible, you always find stuff that's new. Uh, I've been following Jesus for over, for over 20 years and I still find new stuff. And this week I just read the words, the two of them, the two of them. I didn't realize that these two, maybe you figure this out faster than me. These two guys heard the words of these women. They heard the testimony of these women. They heard someone who'd shared the gospel with them and were chewing on it and wrestling with it and talking with each other. And then you see in verse 15 that while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. 
Jesus draws near to those who seek him. And he answered every single question that they had about the scriptures, how this could possibly be true. And it says that he actually started at the very beginning of the Old Testament, which is what they had, and he showed them how all of it pointed to him. How in Genesis, Jesus is the ram at the Abraham's, Abraham's altar. How in Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. How in Leviticus, he's the high priest. How in Numbers, he's the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he's the city of our refuge. In Joshua, the scarlet letter out Rahab's window. In Judges, our judge. In Ruth, our kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, our trusted prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, he's our reigning king. In Ezra, our faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, the rebuilder of everything that is broken. In Esther, he's the one sitting faithful at the gate. In Job, he's our redeemer that always lives. In Psalms, he's our shepherd and we shall never want. In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he's our wisdom. Song of Solomon, the beautiful bridegroom. Isaiah, the suffering servant. Jeremiah and Lamentations, we see a weeping prophet. Ezekiel, he's the wonderful four-faced man. Daniel, the fourth man in the midst of a fiery furnace. Uh, Hosea, he is my love that is forever faithful. Joel, he baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. Amos, our burden bearer. Obadiah, our savior. Jonah, the great missionary that takes the word of God into all the world. Micah, the messenger with beautiful feet. Nahum, the avenger. Habakkuk, he's the watchman praying for revival, with Zephaniah, the Lord mighty to save, Haggai, the restorer of our lost heritage, Zechariah, our fountain, Malachi, the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. And in the gospels, he's the Jesus who rose from the dead. Some of you are wrestling with this and Jesus is this morning inviting and revealing to himself, to himself to you that he has risen. His resurrection is where you can find life. And if you look at the response of those two men on the road, they said, when Jesus was saying these things, he said, our, they said, our hearts burned within us as he talked to us. And I pray this morning that your heart is burning, that, that your heart is aching for Jesus. And this morning, I would have you know that you can come to him and trust the one who rose from the dead for you. Let's pray. Let's pray.